All right, we are back. We're fond of citing uh, New Scientist magazine on this program. But uh, the domestic variety of science magazine, in this case Scientific American, uh, regularly does have some interesting stuff, like this. In the column titled Fact or Fiction, the magazine was asked, Do living people outnumber the dead? Sierra Curtin responded that the human population has swelled so much that people alive today outnumber all those who ever lived. At least, that was the rumor that's been circulating for years. The author noted that this is an embellishment of a rumor started in the 1970s which asserted that 75% of all people ever born were alive at that time. Apparently in 1995, demographer Carl Haub of the Population Reference Bureau, which is a non-government organization in Washington, addressed the issue by calculating how many people had ever existed, a number he updated in 2002. To arrive at his most recent figure, he considered when humans first arose, then estimated the population growth rates during different historical periods. Per his methodology, Homo sapiens appeared about 50,000 years ago and was counted as having a population at that time of two. Now, by 8,000 BC, the time of the Middle East's agricultural revolution, the earth held about five million people. And between the rise of farming and the height of the Roman Empire, the population growth was rather sluggish, but uh, humanity's number got to about 300 million by the year AD 1. In the wake of the Black Death and other plagues, uh, the world population uh, got to uh, 500 million by the year 1650 and doubled uh, by 1850 to more than 1 billion. At any rate, if you do the math based on these suppositions, it turns out that slightly more than 106 billion people have ever been born. Thus, with a world population of about uh, 6.2 billion today, it means that only about 6% of, of people who have ever lived are alive at the present time. And in a section titled Updates, it was noted that um, an attack on a nation's computer system could be an act of war. Evidently, NATO uh, is trying to make some decisions here after the first recognized cyber assault took place on a nation, in this case, Estonia. The story is that last April and May, many of Estonia's government and banking websites came under heavy network attack, ostensibly orchestrated by the Russian diaspora in various countries and by the minority Russian population in Estonia. They were apparently protesting Estonia's moving of a Soviet war monument from the center of Tallinn, the nation's capital, to a war cemetery. The attackers evidently hijacked millions of computers worldwide by sneaking in bots. These, of course, are programs capable of resting control of the machines, and they turn them into uh, foot soldiers in this cyber war. The computers overloaded Estonian servers with false requests. Since no one had a policy on this unprecedented cyber terrorism, NATO member states could do little to aid Estonia, which, of course, joined NATO in 2004. And in a story uh, that's related to this, which appears in truthout.org, article by Dmitry Savastopolo and Richard McGregor, it's noted that the Chinese military evidently hacked into a Pentagon computer network last June, which has now been judged the most successful cyber attack on the U.S. Defense Department. For its part, the Pentagon acknowledged shutting down part of a computer system serving the office of Robert Gates, the defense secretary, but declined to say who it believed was behind the attack. Current and former officials have told the Financial Times of London that an internal investigation has revealed the incursion came from the People's Liberation Army. The article noted that hackers from numerous locations in China spent several months probing the Pentagon system before overcoming its defenses. 
Here's the part of the article I liked. The Pentagon is still investigating how much data was downloaded. But one person with knowledge of the attack said most of the information was probably unclassified. Well, we, we hope they're probably right on that. The spokesman said the event had forced officials to reconsider the kind of information they send over unsecured email systems. Gee, you think they ought to consider that over at the Pentagon? And in a section of the Scientific American magazine titled Security, there is a truly fascinating article titled Muons for Peace. Said the article, the same place that gave the world the atomic bomb has now found a way to ferret out illicit nuclear materials. Los Alamos National Laboratory has developed a method to search for heavy elements such as uranium via subatomic particles from space called muons. Now the muon, which you may never have heard of, is kind of a heavyweight electron. These aren't really everyday particles that we experience, but about 10,000 of them reach every square meter of the Earth's surface every minute. The charged particles arise as the byproduct of cosmic rays colliding with molecules in our upper atmosphere. So yes, we're being bathed by these particles all the time. They travel at what's described as relativistic speeds and can penetrate tens of meters into rocks and other matter before attenuating as a result of absorption or deflection by other atoms. Now it turns out the really dense elements out there like uranium and plutonium uh, really knock these muons around. So if you can measure the angle that they're traveling in, you can pick up these very dense substances. Thus, if you're clever about it, you can use muons to provide a way to detect smuggled nuclear materials, and you can do it better than existing X-ray, neutron, or gamma-ray probes, which expose people to stray radiation. And curiously, if you want to use shielding to defeat these other types of scans, well, this only makes nuclear contraband stand out uh, even more easily if you're using muons, because the dense shielding really gives away the game. Now, the magazine shows an example of a scan of a prototype muon tracker where they took a 10-centimeter cube of lead and hid it inside an engine block. This is something that would easily have evaded a conventional X-ray scan, but, uh, boy, when you ran the muon, passed the muon detector, it stood out like a sore thumb. So evidently, by using a muon tomography, we might be able to better secure the U.S. borders as early as next year. Making a practical use of muons is not that new. UC Berkeley physicist Louis Alvarez put them to work uh, back in the 1960s. He wanted to try and use muons to peer inside objects in Egypt, specifically one of the Giza pyramids. Alvarez hoped that the muons would, uh, would reveal some hidden chambers inside the structure, uh, but they didn't. He couldn't find any, but his work did show that uh, using muon radiography was a viable idea. The magazine notes that besides guarding against terrorism, muons could warn of natural threats. Hiroyaki Tanuka of the University of Tokyo and Toshiyuki Nakano of Nagoya University of Japan have used special photographic plates to collect muons passing through Japan's volcanic Mount Asamayama. Changes in the number and direction of the muons provided images of the volcano's interior. Researchers were evidently able to uh, detect some of the movement of the magma within the volcano, raising the possibility the technique could predict imminent eruptions. Interesting stuff. And we have one obituary to note uh, today, which is in the field of science. Uh, Paul McCready passed away last week. Mr. McCready was the pioneering designer of the first fully capable human-powered flying machine. 
In August of 1977, the McCready-designed lightweight Gossamer Condor made the first sustained, controlled flight powered solely by a human. The flight, which was pedal-powered by pilot Brian Allen, lasted just seven and a half minutes, but it covered a figure-eight course with pylons a half a mile apart at the airport in Shafter, California. The flight won McCready the $95,000 Henry Kramer Prize, which had been established in 1959. It earned him the title Father of Human-Powered Flight. In 1979, McCready put his Gossamer Albatross into the air over the, uh, the English Channel, and the 70-pound, 96-foot wingspan craft made the first human-powered flight across the English Channel. And once again, uh, pilot Brian Allen was the human engine for that 22-mile uh, journey. That flight, which lasted uh, just about three hours, earned McCready a new Kramer Prize of $213,000. That's it for today's show. Our thanks to Ira Flato, host of NPR's Science Friday. Ira Flato talked to us about his new book, Present at the Future, From Evolution to Nanotechnology, Candid and Controversial Conversations on Science and Nature. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.